Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you today. I see some new faces here this morning. I hope you'll give me an opportunity to say hello to you after the service if we have not met. We'd love to catch up with you. Well, I invite you to take your Bible. We're going to turn together to the book of Hebrews. We're in a brief series uh, focusing on our mission, our mission as a church. Uh, after this series, we'll get back to the Gospel of John and finish that out. Uh, but for today, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. That's where we're looking. The wonderful sound of rustling pages and... All right, let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help? Father in heaven, we are grateful that you give us this word we're grateful that you speak, and when you speak, you, you accomplish. And Lord, it is your will that your word would be proclaimed, because that is how you've determined to speak to your people when we gather. Lord, as the human instrument of that, I pray for your guidance and strength and help. Father, that you would control my tongue, that what would be heard this morning transcends the voice of a mere man that you would indeed speak in such a way as to grip our hearts. Lord, give us all submissive hearts and minds and attentiveness that we need to take in the food of your word. We pray as a result of this that Jesus Christ himself would be glorified. Amen. Well, as I said, it's a, we're in a series on the mission of the church, and at the Welcome Center, you're going to find one of these cards here that... Uh, provide you with uh, the marks of discipleship, visible marks of discipleship, and it's uh, just the perfect size to be tucked in most Bibles, so please take advantage of that. Well, I grew up uh, in a home where our priority is a family, uh, and I, I've tried to protect this in my own home too, uh, where we gathered at the family dinner table, and I truly consider that to be a sacred time for the family. Because you know how that works, right? If, if, uh, if there's a plan to be made, it would often be shared there. Uh, at the table, you have the opportunity to check up on your children, to see how school's going, is there any homework. There you might make family announcements, like a, a vacation that is planned, or discuss the chores that are needing to be done. There's an opportunity for, for sharing and, and communication. There your son might ask if he could use the car to go visit with his friends. The dinner table itself is an opportunity to learn to serve one another. And there we learn not to hoard, 
We use manners. We defer to one another. All of this happens while a meal is being served. While your body is being nourished, you have the opportunity to bless others and be a blessing. That's why I view the family dinner table as kind of sacred time. And it's true that even, even now with our kids grown, when they come to visit, we spend most of our time, literally hours, around the table. Now, I've heard some share their own life experiences coming from families who did not have this tradition. Everyone got their own food, and, and if something was prepared, it was just left on the stove, and you just served yourself and went off to your own personal space. And in my mind, I've often thought how impoverished they are as a family, not being able to meet together around the family table. Well, I think in the same way, as disciples of Jesus, we become spiritually impoverished when we don't gather together around the nourishing food of the Word of God. As I already stated, last week we began this this series on the mission of the church. And that's our mission. We state it this way, leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And really that's based on the great commission that Jesus gave. Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Well, we're giving our focus to the particular marks of discipleship, and we're really answering the question, what does a a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? And if we are tasked by the Lord Jesus himself of making disciples, what's it going to look like in the life of that person that we're making a disciple? Well, the second mark we dealt last week with the first mark, which is identifying with Christ and his church. Uh, This week, we're looking at the mark of assembly. That is to say, regularly meeting together with the church for worship and fellowship. I feel like I just lost the mic. Keep going. There we are. All right. The mark of discipleship, regularly meeting together with the church for worship and fellowship. Now, one who is a true disciple of Jesus one who is fully devoted to Christ, to being his follower, is by definition someone who is committed to assembling, to gathering, to meeting together with the church. Now, when we look at the text that we read, the Bible verse that we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says all of these things are uh, stated around this fact, not neglecting to meet together. Now, what does the writer of Hebrews mean by meet together? If you were to look at the, the root word of that, that, uh, that phrase, meet together, it's the same root word that's used for synagogue. And really what it implies is some formality or organization of the assembly of the people of God, not just a casual thing, but there's some organization for it. So I take it that, that what is implied here by the writer of Hebrews, that he, what he means is the assembling of the gathered church. It means the commitment to the assembly of the people in the local church. So as we seek to apply this, and as we seek to understand this for our own lives this morning, I want to I give you three headings, three words or phrases that really help us apply this. Three things that each of us as disciples should do and encourage one another in as we uh, go about the task of making disciples. 
here at Overland Hills Church. And they'll seem a little odd, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Maybe they'll be memorable. First, get a grip. Second, agitate. And third, focus. Now, you may wonder how I'm getting those from the text. Well, you'll, you'll see as we move along. First, get a grip. Now, if you've ever been in a circumstance where you've been under extreme stress or maybe danger, when emotions are heightened, things start to get confusing and you're having, having trouble maybe focusing, maybe there's someone, maybe there's someone who loves you and knows you well. They might have to, to break through the fog that you're in and firmly tell you, get a grip. I don't know if anybody's ever said that to you. What they mean is, come back to reality. Focus on what you know to be true and what you can do in response in that circumstance. Now, I have seen it time and time again. People who have professed to know Christ. People who profess to be Christians and they get wobbly. They wander. They seem to lose faith. And the fact is, that we all need, we all need the reminder to get a grip on our faith. Verse 23, the writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You and I need to get a grip on our profession of faith. Now, how do, you, how do we do that? How do we do that? by not neglecting to meet together. This is what it says in the text. So there's a logical flow in the argument that the writer is making. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you need the encouragement of others and from others to grow in your faith. And you cannot do that unless you meet together with the church. Well, stated another way, it's really hard to be a disciple of Jesus apart from the church. I want to talk about the confession of hope that the, that the Bible text refers to. That is the profession of our faith. It's what the writer has summarized uh, from verses 19 through 23. Look again in your Bibles at that. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now right there, he's making a confession about who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, the implication is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And the fact is, as a result of what Jesus has done, I'll continue, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what he's summarized, what for me, I would summarize it this way. It is simply stated a confidence, the profession of faith, the confession of our faith that we're holding on to. It's a confidence of our salvation through Jesus' death on the cross. Do you have that confidence this morning that his death was for you? It's the confidence that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ of a continuing mediation. That is to say, his place at the right hand of the Father where on our behalf, as his disciples, he continues to mediate for us. That continued relationship. He is our high priest. And it's the confidence that we have been forgiven and cleansed of our sin. 
That God has taken our sin and it cast it as far as the east is from the west. It's that confidence. Our profession of faith, our confession of faith, we need to hold on to that without wavering. We need to get a grip on that. And then he tells us in the second half of verse 23, back to our text in Hebrews 10, verse 23, he says, for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's related to the initial statement, hold fast, and then it talks about the faithfulness of Jesus. So, who promised? That is Jesus. But how is he faithful? Jesus has given us the promise of our forgiveness and cleansing and will faithfully hold us. But one evidence among many of Jesus' faithfulness towards us, his people who confess faith in him, is the church. The church that Jesus said he would build. So what we can say, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can confidently say that our profession of faith in Jesus and our confidence in that profession, our holding fast, our keeping a grip on that profession, that's dependent on the church. That's why the writer tells us the way that this happens, by not neglecting to meet together. Now, I want to, I want to show you in another part of Scripture where, where Jesus made a similar point in talking about, uh, we, and we discussed this, I think, last week, and it's been in part of our, our uh, Sunday school class on, um, on our church polity. Jesus made a similar point in talking about what he, he described as the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is found in Matthew chapter 16. The keys, really, when he talks about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, they're an illustration of authority that Jesus gave to the church. He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is an illustration of authority given to the church. This authority that the gathered church possesses is in regard to someone's confession of faith that, just as Peter had confessed to Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'm just simply making that statement, but I want you to follow me on this and the logic of it. Jesus asked, so this is, I'll, I'll take you to the text in Matthew 16. You don't need to turn there, just listen as I read. Jesus was asking his disciples about what people, the crowds, what did people, what, what were they saying about him? Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus affirmed, to summarize, Jesus affirmed Peter's confession about him as the Christ. And then Jesus said that he would build the church on the foundation of that confession, on this rock, the rock referring to the thing that Peter had said. 
Then Jesus gave the apostles, and by extension the church, authority to assess. That is to say, to determine the authenticity and the reliability of that confession, the keys of the kingdom. Back to Hebrews. This is the faithfulness of Jesus fulfilling his promise to all who truly confessed him as Christ and Lord. So if the church, by Jesus' authority, is entrusted with the authority to assess and validate the profession of faith, we talked about this last week, and that's done through church membership, then the church is collectively responsible to ensure that we hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Do you get that? We are responsible to help each other keep a grip on our profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why we gather. This is essential to what it means to be making disciples. A disciple is one who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And if we're going to help each other grow, we need to help each other to confess and to continue to confess that Jesus is the Christ. So what is it that we do together to ensure that each of us keep a grip on our faith? What do we do together? What's what the apostle Paul said he would do for the Corinthian church. Now, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he was writing into a circumstance where there was some division. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, Cephas. There was, they were like, that's my apostle guy, who are you with? And he said, no, 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 are we divided? No, we, we follow Christ. And, and then he makes this argument in, in chapter 2 about what he is doing among them. Because there's an expectation that had been set for, for among the apostles that would make them more popular, this expectation that, well, he's a great orator. I like that guy. Boy, his sermons just hit me so. What does Paul say? And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what you need. And brothers and sisters, hopefully, hopefully every time you come here, you hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel. Paul wasn't interested in impressing them with his clever speech. He wasn't interested in entertaining them. And so we take that example here. And so the main thing that we do here is focus on the gospel of Jesus. Now, this exhortation is given to the, this audience of this letter because there is a problem, isn't there? Apparently, some were in the habit of being neglectful of this. And then if neglectful, then they were at risk of not holding fast to the profession of their faith. And I got to say, I have seen this more times than I'd like to count. 
meet people, they come to church, they profess faith in Jesus, they get baptized, they join the church. And then through a series of circumstances or priorities that they make in their own lives, they start to drift. Other things become priority. And then they're not behaving like believers anymore. And they're just as much in the world as they were before. Well, you're here. <laughs> but, but the question is, as you think about why we meet together, are you keeping in the habit of it? And are we encouraging each other to meet together? To make that our first priority rather than sports or leisure I know I'm going to step on some toes here. Parents, let me ask you. If you put your son and daughter in organized sports that interferes with the gathering for worship, what are you saying to them? Now, I understand it's COVID season. There are reasons not to come. I get it. You're not here this morning because your immune system is compromised or, or maybe you're just ill today. But I want to urge you. I want to urge you at home don't let complacency and laziness be the reason. And if you're willing to do all kinds of other things, like go to weddings and restaurants and hang out with friends, should you be staying away from worship? Now listen, this is between you and the Lord. I don't encourage you, do not let fear steal the good gift of fellowship and worship, the very thing we need to hold fast to our profession of faith without wavering. Don't let fear steal that good gift. Second. Second word is agitate. Now that sounds very negative, but I want to use it in a very positive sense. Um, what happens... I know how to do laundry. So what happens, because I've observed this, what happens when you put laundry into the washing machine? You push that start button, right? The water starts to flow. It soaks into the clothing, and then, then the detergent soaks in. And then what happens? The tub begins to spin back and forth, back and forth. And what it's doing is agitating the water. It's agitating the soap and your laundry together to, do, to achieve that desired result, right? Clean laundry. Our text tells us that our meeting, in our meeting together, verse 24, we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word stir up, those two words, stir up, really are a translation of a single word in the original language. And it could also be translated as stimulate, incite, irritate, agitate. I picked agitate because I thought it would be memorable. But the point is, this is a good thing. When, church, when the church gathers together, it's an opportunity to agitate each other in a good way, to stir up one another to love and good works. The, the water of the word of God can flow between us, and we soak it in and squeeze it out for good things to be achieved among us. When we love one another, it's a reflection of the character of Christ, isn't it? When we love one another, we're, we're, we're reflecting the character of Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, stir up one another, agitate each other to love. Jesus commanded it, in fact. 
A new commandment I give to you, John 13, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The good works that the writer of Hebrews is exhorting them to to stir each other up for, they are a practical display of our love for one another. So you love when you serve. You love when you give. You love when you sacrifice time. You love when you put someone else's interests about, uh, above your own. You love when you set aside your own small needs for the greater needs of others, seeking to help them grow in their faith. And so we are to consider That is to say, we're to think about how to agitate, to stir up to love and good works. And I want you to see that there's a forcefulness in this. There's an intentionality that ought to be marked, really, that that ought to be exemplified when we gather. We're not to be passive, but proactive and purposeful towards one another. Consider, put your mind to it, ruminate on this. Think about, plan and purpose and decide to stir up one another. When we meet together, it's an opportunity to do that, to put love on display. Now, how might we do this? Oh, <laughs> the New Testament has so much to say. Let me, let me just give you a few, and I'll, I'll kind of buzz through these. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12, 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. When you feel that there's a conflict, are you seeking, are you seeking harmony? Romans 15, 7, welcome one another. When you see other members of the church family, you're here. Is, is there that excitement? Oh, I get to be with the family. My family is coming over this afternoon because it's Avery's second birthday. I always get so excited when, when they're coming over. You know, I haven't seen my granddaughter in a few weeks, and so she's going to be there. I'm excited. I want to see them. Do, do you feel that way about the church family? Eager to welcome one another, looking forward to that occasion to be together because we have something stronger together than, than my relationship with my children and grandchildren. That's a human blood relation. It's a family relation, but we are united by the blood of Christ. That is, that is thicker than anything because it will last forever. And every time we gather and welcome one another in the name of the Lord Jesus, we're we're just sort of foreshadowing what will be forever. And let me say this. If you don't want to be with God's people on the Lord's day, even that, what makes you think you'd want to be in glory together? Honestly. Anyway, 
1 Corinthians 12, 25, have the same care for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, comfort one another, agree with one another. Galatians 5, 13, through love, serve one another. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Ephesians 4, 32, submit to one another. Ephesians 5, 21, bear with, admonish one another. Colossians 3, 13 and 16, encourage one another, build one another, do good to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, exhort one another. Hebrews 3.13, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and and there's so many more. That's James 5.16. Here's one thing that is absolutely certain, absolutely certain. You can't do these one another's of scripture unless you make a priority of being with one another. So, disciple, Be present, be purposeful. When you're present, consider how you might show Jesus' love to a brother or sister. Now listen, it could begin with a simple greeting or a welcome. It could be you, COVID times, right, to do things differently. It could be you changing seats. So a larger family could could have the row you're in. It's not a problem right now. Maybe somebody shares a need in a conversation. Now I know you're, you're thinking about what time it is and you're thinking maybe I gotta get to lunch. But invest in the moment and be fully present. Maybe that brother or sister just simply needs to unburden themselves. And maybe, maybe you provide an invitation to lunch or, or accompany you to a Bible study or a care group. It could be just, not just, but as important as this is, when you sit here and led by the music team, actually singing, actually opening your mouth. I know, maybe you think, oh, I haven't got a very good voice. You know the Bible commands it? Speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It says it twice in the New Testament. I don't have the references, I just thought of that now. But the point is, that's a command. And And you know what? You can build someone else up in their faith. If if you're declaring these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ and someone across the room looks at you and you go, yeah, she believes that. Yeah. You're serving each other. Showing love could be in your service with children, helping set up or as a greeter. I mean, there's a million things. But when we do this, there is another great benefit. When we stir each other up to love and good works. There's another benefit. What happens when the church gathers? What happens when we love one another like Jesus loves us? Jesus said this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me ask you, have you thought that there's a value in our witness? Now, even in saying this and exhorting it. I'm not saying I don't see this. I do see this, and it's glorious. So let me affirm that in you, church family. But do it all the more. And for those of you who are kind of on the wings and the sides and not really, and maybe withdrawn, take the exhortation from Scripture and find a way. Consider how you might stir up, agitate love and good works, even with the personality that the Lord has given to you. Well, third, 
The third word related to meeting together is this, focus. So get a grip, agitate, and focus. Uh, Why is it that during this COVID-19 pandemic, why is it that the CDC encourages masks where this physical distancing is unlikely or impossible? They gave us a reason. They said it could potentially limit the spread of the virus from you if you were infected to someone else. Now, we get this. If they just simply said, because we told you, (laughs) uh, I think some of us would have a hard time obeying that. In fact, some of us have a hard time just complying the way it is. But without a reason, it would just be doubly, triply hard, right? What the CDC wants is for us to focus on the goal, right? Flattening the curve, reducing infections so we can get back to some kind of normal. That's what they tell us. And so that's the focus. That's just the purpose. You have your opinions on the mask thing. That's not my, I'm just trying to state what they're doing. There's a focus in this. And an essential mark of being a disciple of Jesus is that we make a habit of meeting together as the assembled church for worship and fellowship. But there's a point, there's an objective, and there is a focus. Yes, we've already stated it so we can build up one another. But there is an end game. It's the the big goal of all of this we see in verse 25. The writer says, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as you see the way that the argument is laid out, in all of this, our focus, the overarching objective is helping each other be ready for the day that is drawing near. What is the day? Uh, Your Bible likely has that day capitalized, the D capitalized in day. A day is meant to be taken, in a sense, as a a proper name or a title. Now, what the writer here is referring to is the return of Jesus. Theologians use the word parousia. It just simply way of describing the second coming in, in a word economy, I guess. But that word means presence. And what we're looking forward to is the fact that Jesus will be again present bodily with us on this renewed earth. There's that day coming. Now, Jesus himself promised that he would return. So we, we hang on to this, John 14, 3. Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself. Acts 1, 11, after Jesus ascended, an angelic messenger of the Lord told the disciples, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The, the apostles continued to affirm this truth, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The apostle Paul writes, the Lord himself would descend from heaven, James 5.8. The coming of the Lord is at hand. This truth is an essential doctrinal truth. That Jesus will return is meant, well, it's true, but also being told about it is meant to motivate us. In light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, we must persevere. Well, what's the danger? What's the danger? You see, there are some, there are some who think that they're disciple of Jesus, disciples of Jesus that are self-deceived. They're self-deceived. And I'm making the point here that our gathering together, our not neglecting to meet together and having a focus on the end helps us sort out in the present what we truly believe. 
Jesus described people who on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Good question. Jesus not moved by that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now on that day, this will be a tragedy of epic, eternal proportions. These are people who never got a grip of their confession of faith. And they didn't hang out with other genuine believers to know what it really means to truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They are people who could not truly confess that Jesus is Lord. Rather, what they had is some religious ideas and they did some religious things. And Jesus says that he will say to them, depart from me. Brothers and sisters, the remedy against self deception is the habit of meeting together now and encouraging one another now and stirring up one another to good works now. That's why we assemble. That's why coming together and meeting together is a mark of discipleship, an essential mark. John says in his first letter, and now little children, Abide in him. Just feel the warning in this. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Don't, don't let your faith grow cold. Don't get so used to physical distancing and the stay-at-home church. I'm so grateful for the children. And I know some parents say, maybe you're a little uncomfortable. We have quiet rooms, but I'm gonna tell you, those quiet rooms are not for me. It doesn't bug me that your kids make some noise, honestly. I'm just grateful that you're here. There's lots of things you can control. The ringer in your cell phone, you can shut that thing off. Sometimes your kids are just gonna be squirmy and unruly. You're doing your best as parents, but that you're here, I'm grateful. And while they don't fully understand, perhaps, why they're here, someday they'll understand that you made a priority of it and you said that was important because you said by your presence. I need to keep a grip on my profession of faith. I need to be agitated towards love and good works by these other people. And with the fact that Jesus is coming back, I need to hang on and I need these people to help me. So don't, don't let your faith grow cold. If at all possible, Come, come for the sake of your soul. 
Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, this feels heavy, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We help each other by not neglecting to meet together, by being committed to meeting together. That's an essential mark of a disciple of Jesus. Now, now there are wrong motives for coming to church. Maybe you're here to, to impress a family member or a friend. Maybe you think that by being here, you're going to earn something from God. I, I do see this all the time. Maybe mostly in jest. Um, someone, this, is, this has happened to me. Someone on my hockey team knows I'm a Christian. They've heard that I'm a pastor. And as is typical in the hockey locker room, someone says something quite lewd. And then they proceed to apologize to me and to declare to me, well, I should go to church. <laughs> that'll, that'll fix it. I get what they're saying. God cannot be paid off by your attendance here. God gives us this gift of one another for our own sake. He gains no, we add nothing to God by being here, but we add everything to ourselves. Now, if those wrong reasons are yours, the, the remedy is not not to stop coming. No, I want to give you a better motive. Come to hear the gospel so that you can get a grip on that confession. And I'll tell you what it is. Jesus is the son of God who came to this world. He clothed himself in human flesh he lived among the people in perfect sinlessness, pristine holiness. He was falsely accused. The religious leaders were jealous of him and they accused him falsely and concocted a story to get him to be arrested by Roman authorities he was nailed to a Roman cross. They thought they did away with him. But God had a plan for their evil actions to nail Jesus to the cross. God the Father had a plan, and Jesus knew the plan and was fully submitted to the plan that his own crucifixion would be a substitute, a sacrificial offering for sin for all who would look to him in faith, who, for all who would see there at the cross their own sin being taken away. And Jesus died. He was buried in a tomb. And because that sin had no power over him, because it wasn't his own, he emerged from the tomb, leaving the eternal consequence for all of our sin, all of us who've trusted in him, leaving the eternal consequence in that tomb, he walked out alive. And he gives the same kind of life to all who would put their faith in him. So, if you're here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Christ, do that now. 
do that now. If you're listening at home or somewhere across the world, put your faith in Jesus and get to church so you can hold on to that confession of hope. Come here so that you can grow in your faith and agitate and encourage one another to love and good works. Come here so that you can keep your focus on the fact that Jesus is coming back for his own. Fully devoted follower of Jesus, you're someone who loves to meet together with God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the exhortation for the good gift of the local church that you've given to us. And Lord, as we seek to grow as disciples and make more disciples, help us in our minds and in sharing the importance of how we follow Jesus to remind one another we need to be together. It's an opportunity for us to display your character being formed in us and so that the world will know about Jesus. Strengthen us, Father, in these things. We do pray it for the glory of Christ.